Hi there, it's Jeff MacArthur, and welcome to the podcast for Tuesday, October the 20th. Coming up, we'll talk with Carl Littler of the Retail Council of Canada about food prices on the rise during the second wave of the pandemic. Carolyn Jarvis, Global News Chief Investigative Reporter, joins us to discuss Canada's COVID testing supply chain crisis. And Adam Oldfield about some tech stories that are making news on this Tuesday. It's all coming up right now in the pod. And as the second wave of the pandemic continues, there is renewed concern when it comes to Canadians and the food chain, in particular, the price of food. Experts say that food discounting at grocery stores, well, that's been non-existent. It has disappeared since the pandemic began way back in March, and the price of food is about to explode. Here's a Carl Littler. He's with the Retail Council of Canada, and he joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Carl, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Nice to have you with us. Uh, we're hearing that the pandemic has accelerated price increases for the food we eat. Is that true? And do we know how costly uh, food's going to get? Well, no question it's had an impact in some areas. And, um, and that, that's not surprising because, of course, there are all manner of entities that have had to go through um, pandemic uh, preparation uh, They've, in many cases, had to, you know, increase pay along the way. They've had to take on a whole bunch of PPE costs and so forth. And, and those do, per, you know, they, those do pose some upward pressures on the system. Um, there's some help that's, uh, you know, perhaps uh, out there um, in some parts of retail on some of the government support programs, but that's not something that's applicable to sort of grocery. So pretty much grocery has to shoulder all of those costs itself. And, of course, some of that gets passed on to the consumer because grocery is a very thin-margin business. It actually has a 2% profit margin. All right. Well, you know, obviously, as you well know, a lot of retailers have had to shoulder the burden of the uh, pandemic with increased uh, costs. But when it comes to food, is it just that, do we know? Or is it a supply thing? Is it tougher to get uh, food supplies? Is it a demand thing that uh, Canadians are, once again, kind of panic buying when it comes to certain food items? Or is it a bit of both, do we think? Well, there's a lot more food being eaten at home, that's for sure. So, um, there, you know, you could see that in, uh, especially in the early part of the year, the grocery stores uh, saw a significant uptick in the sales that they were making. And that's partly because restaurants uh, tended to be closed, obviously things like school cafeterias and, you know, those sorts of places, hospitality. Um, and, and so there's a big, big demand. And so to the extent that you're asking suppliers to supply more than you'd originally booked for, it's a seller's market, not a buyer's market. So it's very difficult for grocers to, you know, to drive a, a, a tight bargain price on that. For sure, that made a difference. And of course, as we enter into, in some parts of the country, into what uh, would be characterized as a second wave, again, you have a lot more people eating at home than, uh, than would have done previously. Yeah. And Carl, if we've got certain people or certain families that were eating out on the regular and are now uh, eating at home, they've probably seen a drop, I would think, in their uh, food bill compared to restaurant uh, prices. Having said that, though, those families that depend on their grocer in a grocery store and eat at home the majority of time and restaurants are an occasional uh, treat if they go at all, is this putting those families and uh, certain uh, Canadian families perhaps at risk as we see these food prices explode? Yeah, I, I think there's no question that if you ate most of the food at home before and that, um, you know, that hasn't changed and that you're seeing upward pressure on food prices because of uh, 
the supply side because of transportation costs and so on, that yeah, it's going to have a negative impact on the on your food bill. When I say a negative impact, I mean it's going to you know see some price increases on the food bill. Here with Carl Littler from the Retail Council of Canada. Carl, I also wanted to ask you this afternoon if there are any other items that the Retail Council expect to see an increase in price in the uh, coming months. Is it just groceries, or can we expect to see prices uh, rise elsewhere? Well, I think broadly speaking in retail, of course, we're entering holiday season. And while there will probably be less promotional pricing than there has been in the past, I would expect there to be some bargains out there. But I think the sorts of things that kind of extend the Canadian season or are for more around the home. So, you know, I'm thinking about things like, you know, patio uh, lights and heaters and uh, that kind of thing on the one hand, uh, fire pits. If you look at um, if you look at items like baking supplies and mason jars and so on, I mean, those are pretty uh, hotly subscribed items at the moment. And, you know, uh, it's a pretty basic law of economics so there's a huge amount of demand and you don't have to cut the prices on the supply side. So those sorts of things that extend, uh, you know, life in Canada, uh, you know, deeper into uh, colder weather and, and, and stuff that's going to be for the sort of home environment, I suspect you'll see fewer bargains there. If you can even find a patio heater or a fire pit. I finally, by the way, did something right in my life, and I bought a patio heater way back in uh, July, anticipating that, uh, you know, we'd want to still be outdoors with the pandemic in the uh, winter months. Having said that, uh, along with a second wave, are we starting to see, uh, Carl, a second round of panic buying by Canadian consumers? Um, we... It's a bit of a self-feeding thing. So what happens is, and I, I by no means blame the media because obviously it's a pretty interesting issue, but to some degree, somebody creates a story that they're running short on toilet paper and that everybody runs in and scoops as many as they can into their cart. And then, of course, there is a short-term shortage. For the most part, these things aren't real shortages. Um, they are, you know, they're... It's not like people are using more TP, for example. Um, so these things tend to be about making sure that if the demand's increasing, that you can get it shipped and on the shelf quickly enough. But they're not real, uh, you know, real mismatch between demand and supply. There are some things, uh, and I think you know most people would note lights all wipes and their competitors are, are you know being in relatively short supply, and that's because people are cleaning up a lot more. Um, I would uh, I don't have metrics on this, but I'm pretty sure that hand sanitizers, even though production's gone up a lot, are in you know even greater demand relatively speaking. So certain kinds of things uh, have been harder to stock, um, but I, I don't really see a significant level of of uh, outstripping, uh, you know, of, of demand outstripping supply. Just finally, uh, Carl, as this pandemic stretches on, just give us the 30,000-foot view, as it were. Uh, how is the retail sector faring overall? How are they doing right now? So it's a bit of a, a different tale depending on what part of the sector you're in. Um, so things that uh, most of retail and I say most, but there are a lot of that fall outside of this, are sort of back to the same levels that we saw last year at the same time. Uh, and that is true across the bulk of retail, whether that's electronics or hardware or what have you. Where it's been a real issue is, especially in apparel uh, and accessories, obviously, you know, it's a terrible situation if you sell luggage, nobody's traveling. But if you think of apparel and accessories, that's significantly down. Many of the others are back in a kind of year-over-year comparison to levels comparable to where they were last year. But more of that is taking place on e-commerce. That's the first thing. 
And the second thing is there's a seven billion dollar hole that was dug in there between sort of March and uh, and when things were sort of reopening uh, later in the summer. And so while they caught up to last year, it's not that they've made good for the troughs that uh, existed when uh, you know sort of COVID nineteen was at its worst. Yeah, Christmas is always imperative for the retail sector, but even more so because of the pandemic this year. I mean, do we expect, sadly, to hear more businesses closing maybe in the new year if they don't have a great Christmas? Is it really make or break for some businesses this year? Yeah, it's pretty vital. Uh, For many businesses, it's as much as a third of the year sales are in this kind of period between, you know, that includes... uh, you know, Prime Day is a case in point, and then Black Friday, Cyber Monday, on through Christmas, uh, you know, post-Christmas sales. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very critical period. I think we, we are somewhat optimistic. We've seen a study today that came out from Deloitte that was less so, but they also tend to roll in things like travel. When we look at core retail, we're reasonably optimistic, but that's not to say that everybody's going to survive this or they're going to make good some of the losses that they suffered earlier in the year. All right, Carl, appreciate the discussion and the time as well with us this afternoon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Carl Littler is with the Retail Council of Canada. World Series gets underway later tonight. It is game one between the Dodgers and the Rays of Tampa Bay. They are playing in Texas, though. And I believe this is the first time in World Series history, which goes back a few years, by the way, if you're not baseball aficionado. Uh, the first time that they've ever played the World Series that it's not been in one of the two teams' home parks. Oh, right. Yeah, because of the pandemic, uh, obviously. They're uh, bubbling there in Texas. Brand new state-of-the-art stadium there. And here's something that's kind of different and kind of cool, is they're allowing fans in, but only 11,000. And I think they've been doing this in certain NFL cities as well. They'll allow a particular number of fans in that can then a bubble, like if you come in with your family and you can properly distance from uh, others, at least some people can come in and enjoy the games. And I'm thinking to myself, this is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, just to go to any World Series, mm-hmm. once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But able to go to a World Series game where there's basically nobody else there. Yeah, that's perfect. 11,000 people in a 50 or 60,000 seat stadium. Wow. Yeah, you've got a good chance of catching a ball. You would think, yeah. or at least it's going to rattle around in seats around you somewhere. <laughs> you can go chase uh, after it. So, anyways, World Series, that gets under uh, tonight. If you're a Leaf fan, stick around because coming up a little later uh, this hour, some pretty big stuff here. Uh, I got a chance on the morning show earlier today to sit down and talk to uh, Mitch Marner. We'll see how uh, Mitch is doing, how he's faring. Uh, We asked him actually about uh, when does he have any word when the NHL season is going to resume again, when they're going to start the next season, because it's got to be so weird for these guys right now. Here we are in the middle of October. The regular season normally would be underway. That's right. And the season actually just wrapped up. Yep. Just finished like a couple of weeks ago. So they're still waiting for the go-ahead. There's been a lot of rumors. It could be the first of the year, January 1, they'll get going again. But uh, we talked to Mitch about that and uh, several other things. Oh, including, of course, uh, Joe Thornton being added to the team uh, just this past weekend. And as well, double your money, double your pleasure. Not one, not two Leafs. We have a current Leaf in Mitch Marner and a former Leaf in Nick Kiprios. Talk to the Kipper about his brand new book that he's got out. Great read. And as well, we'll get his take on whether or not, speaking of the NHL season just winding up, whether or not the Tampa Bay Lightning, should they have an asterisk next to their name? 
should there be like a little star there next to them on the uh, Stanley Cup because uh, they want it in a very unusual and uh, different fashion? Yeah, no crowd. No home court advantage. I mean, home ice advantage. Yeah, no crowd, uh, no 82-game schedule. And, of course, there was a break between the uh, what was a partial regular season and, of course, the uh, playoffs. This is, you know, the first playoff where everybody, essentially, every team went in pretty much injury-free and very well arrested. So a very different to Stanley Cup. So we'll get to Nick Kiprios' take on that and talk to him about his brand-new book. That's on the way a little later this hour. First, though, as we mentioned off the top of the show, Ontario's testing numbers are falling well below their targets. Only 24,000 tests done yesterday, well below, of course, the 50,000 target. And, of course, many people are waiting days, if not a week, for a testing appointment. And then waiting days, if not a week, for those test results. And Global News Chief Investigative Reporter Carolyn Jarvis has been looking into this, and she joins us now for more here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Carolyn, how are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, thank you. Uh, the headline of your piece that you've written with Andrew Russell up at globalnews.ca is Inside the Supply Chain Crisis Slowing Canadian Labs. Can you explain that for us? Well, there's a number of things impacting labs. Number one we exposed last week was a huge HR shortage. Labs can't get enough staff to crank through the volumes of tests that they are just being inundated with these days. The second piece of the equation that we go into depth today in our investigation is about supplies. We knew since the spring that things like reagents, there's a word we never heard of before, those are chemicals used to process tests, were in short supply. Then came issues with ordering the very machines that analyze tests. They took weeks, sometimes even months to arrive. Now, as our investigation has uncovered, tiny little pieces of plastic that are called consumables, disposable items like the tip of a pipette that's used to transfer a tiny little bit of fluid into a vial. Those plastic pieces, they can't get those anymore. Lab managers are saying to me, I never in a million years thought that we would be short pieces of plastics. But lo and behold, the supply chain is broken because the demand is overwhelming and they can't get what they need to conduct the tests, and so labs are not running at capacity. So this is not exactly just a uh, problem of technicians, and we have heard that over the last uh, few weeks, and I believe it takes upwards of five years to get somebody uh, trained up and educated to be one of these lab technicians, so it's just not like you can put out uh, you know, an ad on uh, uh, monster.com or somewhere like that and uh, start uh, hiring folks uh, right away. I mean, that is part of the problem, but as you're uncovering here, it really is uh, an equipment problem as well, and is there a way that we can produce this uh, here in uh, Canada? I mean, we heard that, of course, early in the pandemic when it came to N95 masks and PPE, and there was a rush to get some Ontario manufacturers uh, on board in uh, producing these sorts of things. Can that be uh, produced, uh, you know, in country or locally? Well, that's exactly the question that lab managers are asking and, and were scratching their heads about as we were in conversation with them for the last couple of weeks. They said PPE was at the forefront of everybody's mind at the outset of this pandemic, but... Even lab managers themselves never thought that we would have an issue supplying something as simple as a tiny piece of plastic, but everything is under strain. And so the question is, why haven't we, in a very critical, very granular way, pulled apart the supply chain that labs rely on to see what would be required to get every single piece of the equation in place? And we haven't necessarily done that yet. 
Credit to the provincial and federal governments where due. They are looking at finding some solutions. Quebec government responded to us and said they're trying to create a six-month stockpile for labs. But the relief is not in place yet. And so one lab manager in Montreal said to me that he has enacted what he considers the equivalent of, quote, wartime measures, that labs are are shutting down in some cases and are having to transfer test kits and supplies to other labs. If if one lab has you know, pipette tips or plastic plates and another one doesn't, they're sh- sharing and swapping stuff. He says, this doesn't happen. This is not normal practice. And that is what we have had to um, go to in order to just stay afloat and just to survive. Um, the supply chain, as, as you alluded to, has moved in a very modest way to the domestic front, but by and large, production happens outside our borders, most of it in China, and a lot of it in the United States. And as we know, the appetite for COVID tests in the United States far exceeds ours and outstrips our demand. And so we are left begging for whatever is left over. Yeah, and that's a big part of the problem here because it's just not testing, you know, in our province or next door in Quebec or even right across Canada. There's obviously COVID testing demand right around the world, worldwide, and there's only so much of this. And much like, again, to draw a parallel to the N95 masks early in the pandemic, is there a real bidding war out there for uh, some of this uh, supply to uh, get these tests done? Oh, absolutely. I spoke with the distribution company um, just a few days ago, and I said, you know, why is your company on the list of products that are at risk of, of running out? And he said, well, I used to source them out of the States, and I can't get them out of the States anymore. Now I've gone to China, and in China I'm paying three times as much. And I said, well, why are you paying three times as much? And just like you alluded to there, he said, you know, because I can, <laughs> because the dollar is king. And so... Um, are we overpaying? Probably in some cases, although we don't have documentation to back that up yet. <laughs> we'll be looking into it. Um, but uh, the demand is just so overwhelming. And I, this goes back to your earlier point. And until we can produce a secure supply chain within our borders, we will be at the mercy of global forces. And, of course, this has got uh, real implications, particularly when it comes to the spread of COVID-19, because, as we well know, contact tracing and getting testing done in a timely fashion is so important in identifying people who may be shedding the virus uh, and spreading it. Well, this is it. You know, lab manager said to me, ideally, we get your results back to you within 24 hours. And I've heard of cases in Toronto where that is now starting to happen, which is wonderful news. And credit to the people who are working in these labs, because, man, they are working literally around the clock, day in, day out. These labs do not stop functioning to get people their results. But, um, you know, for example, Dr. Tony Mazzulli, who runs the biggest private uh, hospital-based lab, I should say, in Ontario, um, out of Mount, um, sorry, yes, is it Mount Sinai, I believe it is, uh, shared with the University Hospital Network. His lab is not running at full capacity. And I said, why isn't? He said, we have machines that can be running more than they are, but because we don't have the equipment or the supplies to run them, now we have bodies, we don't have the equipment, they're not running at full capacity. So that creates a slowdown in the entire chain between you getting your test done and you getting your results back. If we could be running these machines around the clock because we had everything in place to do it, people would get the results sooner and by getting your results, you would know for certain that you needed to quarantine as opposed to the risk some people run, which is, well, you know, I don't feel that sick and maybe I'm not going to quarantine or going to go out for that cup of coffee or what have you, and they risk transmission. 
Yeah, just finally, Carolyn, do we know, is rapid testing the solution to this a problem? Is this just germane to the swab test that we need all of this uh, equipment and this uh, supply to get, uh, albeit maybe more reliable results from the swab test, but would rapid testing uh, relieve the pressure here? Boy, there is a hot button issue that is a complete separate investigation, (laughs) Jeff, that we probably can't answer in, you know, a few seconds. Um, Let me just say it is a very polarizing topic of the experts that I spoke with. The large consensus from lab managers was that this was not the solution because um, the um, because the accuracy of the test was not 100 percent, was not as strong as a nasal swab. Other people will counter that it's better to have um, some result than none. But this is a very polarizing topic. So it really depends on who you ask. All right. Interesting stuff. Great work as always. And great to chat with you as always. Carolyn, thanks for the time. Thanks, Jeff. Be well. Global News Chief Investigative Reporter Carolyn Jarvis. Again, her piece is up right now at globalnews.ca. It's entitled Inside the Supply Chain Crisis Slowing Canadian Labs. Premier Ford announced plans to put all of your ID cards onto your mobile phone. How would that work? And will it work? Is it a good idea? Let's ask our tech expert, Adam Oldfield, those questions. He joins us now on Global News Radio. Adam, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here as always. Okay, obviously we're talking about things like uh, your driver's license, uh, maybe your SIN card. Uh, Just how exactly is the government planning on taking those physical objects, those plastic cards, and turning them digital? Right. Well, first of all, yeah, it would be your health card. It would be your driver's license. Provincially, they're looking at taking this and building it almost like an Apple wallet or an Android wallet. Uh, You would digitize it in a way that it has almost like a QR code, barcode, save it to your mobile device, and it would simplify and speed up the process pertaining to linking it to your profile so you won't have to necessarily wait in line, take a number, stand and patiently hope that you can renew or update your uh, driver's license or health card information. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, wait a minute. I no longer have to go to Service Ontario and wait in the queue, stand in line? That's the theory of what you would have to do. That's However, my favorite part of life. I, I don't think that I could give that up. Well, I know it's one of my most war- loving uh, moments of my life is to stand there on my birthday and go, hi, everybody. Good to see you every year. You know, it's nice to see everyone's uh, all celebrating at the same time. So it's supposed to simplify and build efficiencies. It's also intended to be a little more proficient when it comes to businesses as well. So, uh, you know, if we need to get, you know, from driver's license, setting up the license plate for dealer dealerships or otherwise, it's intended. And by the way, I think it's a great idea, Jeff. I think it really is. There's a lot of um, bullet holes in it I like to reference with whatabouts. And one of okay. them particularly is that privacy. And we talk about that a lot. It's reference. It's encrypted. They reference it's private. I, I'm not involved in the process. But if it was me sitting with our uh, uh, premier and having this conversation, this is an opportunity that they could use blockchain as a great opportunity to uh, limit those privacy issues or concerns of it being copied. This is a great opportunity. I didn't hear that was in the press release, but it would create an ability to make it work. You know, honestly, sometimes, uh, Adam, I think I'm a bit of a soothsayer. I can, like, read into the future because... My hand to God, Saturday, we were heading out, and I was getting in the car, and I was like, oh, I forgot my wallet. 
And I had to go back and uh, get my wallet. And I thought to myself, like, why is like my driver's license and why the, why can't it be on my phone with everything else? And then I really got thinking about it. And again, I'm not making this up. This actually happened to me on Saturday. And then I thought, you know what? This is maybe not a great idea because, you know, like so many others, I'm already so worried about losing my phone or misplacing it. Wouldn't that worry be amped up like 100% or more if I had my driver's license, my health card and everything else on it? Uh, you would think that that would be a case. I, I don't know how you've set up your devices. In my case, um, and maybe because I love technology, if I lose my phone, uh, I've got it set up between Android and Google to wipe it anywhere it is, number one. And number two, uh, if you back it up into the cloud, depending on what services you have, iCloud, uh, Google accounts, you should be able, uh, between a lot of the services available, to be back online with any mobile device uh, within a matter of a few hours to migrate it. So to answer that question or concern, I believe it's easily resolved with a lot of cloud-based services that exist today. So it would be unlike losing your wallet. Your wallet, I mean, you're just hoping on the good graces of a good Samaritan to pick it up and return it and to find you. If you did lose your phone, which is your de facto uh, wallet in the future, again, just automatically uh, wipe it clean and uh, load a new one and away you go. Absolutely. In fact, uh, knowing that the, the today's technology with the most recent phones and the services available, both on Apple and Android, you can set it up uh, to wipe the account, whether it's, uh, you know, trying a password so many times or finding your phone, seeing where it is, and you can create a brick out of it. So you wouldn't have to have that concern that someone's got my driver's license, like your wallet, as you use the example. Uh, those days, it makes it, it, you will be able to incorporate that protection within that within your mobile device. All right, but should I still be uh, concerned about privacy and, in particular, identity theft? Because, you know, we've heard over the years, and I'm sure you and I have discussed this, that, uh, you know, there's people uh, walking around, they just have to walk by you on the street, and they can swipe or scan your phone even when it's in your pocket and pick up all of your data. Again, wouldn't that be a, a concern when it comes to, you know, things like your driver's license, your health card now on your phone, that we could see identity theft go up? Absolutely. Depending on how they build that, that technology, Jeff. And I, again, I think the province has announced that they're migrating it into this digital wallet. Uh, if it's built properly, then it will be secure. If it's got the, depending on how it's going to interconnect with uh, government systems, um, meaning that, you know, you go to a kiosk or you want to update versus standing in line uh, and you need your government ID to prove that, or use the example of a, a police officer pulls you over and says, may I see your license or registration? and you pull up your digital wallet and it literally produces a QR code and the officer can scan it, um, if it's encrypted properly, depending on how it transfers this information, which it hasn't been identified, if it's through Bluetooth, yes, the concerns you just mentioned are very possible to happen. If it's through an encrypted NFC near-field communication, very similar to how Apple Pay and, and Samsung Pay and Google Pay works, then it will be encrypted and will be secure. I can only believe that the government's going to use the most secure methods to ensure that uh, it's NFC or, or fully encrypted when transferring this information to other government bodies that need that data. Okay, you have more faith than I do. If it's done properly, as long as we don't get the same people behind the Phoenix Pay system to do this, then I might be on board, okay? <laughs> I was going to say, give it, I mean, I'm not going to make any jumping into, let's trust it, Jeff. I'm, I'm just making a point. There's a lot of variables still on the yeah. table depending on which way it goes. All right. Meantime, SpaceX has gotten CRTC approval for satellite Internet in this country. What does this mean? What does it mean for the Internet in Canada? 
Well, let me first start off. When I heard this news, uh, I celebrated with a little bit of a jig. I did a little dance, and uh, I was really excited about this, Jeff. This is, this, is, this is huge news. And the reason why it's so big is that we now have another Internet provider that's in Canada. And what that means is that you don't just have Rogers, you don't just have TELUS, you don't have just the major players in Canada. But even better than that is the fact that it's going to provide up to 100 megabytes bytes per second download uh, up to 60 gigabyte or megabytes upload and that's almost fiber this is a satellite through Elon Musk system through the SpaceX and it's going to cover Canada not just Ontario not just Toronto it's going to cover Canada that means we'll be able to sit in a tent somewhere in Algonquin Park and be able to gather 100 megabytes a second in internet meaning your children can be like oh, I don't want to go camping but now they can watch netflix and the disney channel easily from their tent sitting by a lake or a river this is very important because canada and remote areas are struggling right now without even uh capable internet so uh first of all it gives access to remote areas amazing fantastic Yoo-hoo! adam's excited number two the most important this is going to put competition into canada right now in regards to driving the cost of data i mean the fact that spacex got approval means all the other internet providers are going to up their game because it's going to be cheaper it's going to be faster and it's going to be available across canada okay i hate to be the skeptic again here but do we, because uh, we hear this all the time, that internet prices, they've got to come down. They're raging. They're out of control uh, in this country. And we hear the argument time and time again from internet providers that, uh, you know, we have a vast country with a lot of rocky terrain and it costs money to set up the infrastructure. All that's gone by the wayside now, theoretically, when it's a satellite up in the air. But then can SpaceX make the argument that, uh, well, we had to launch a satellite. That costs money and we need to pay for it. I think uh, based on the fact, you know, and that's a very valid point, Jeff, and, you know, this isn't just Canada anymore. This isn't like a Canadian business was trying to, you know, compete with services. One of the reasons that this is happening and why we see Starlink or SpaceX jumping on this is that in the United States, the FCC, back about four years ago, gave or didn't give, has allocated $16 billion dollars to the first company that is able to accomplish creating a remote internet service to areas in the United States. Well, it makes sense since Elon Musk is going to fire up 12,000 satellites to float in the sky, um, that Canada is going to be, Alaska, hello, is going to be in that area. So I don't think Canada was on Elon Musk's radar. I'm not speaking on behalf of him, but I'm willing to bet it's just a default because of Alaska that they are involved in the, hey, Canada, sure, we'll give you Internet. In the meantime, he's really buying, uh, he's got to have, by the year 2024, the ability to have, or a company, he's just one of them trying quickly to get there, to offer this internet to remote areas across the U.S. So, in Alaska being one of those areas. So, we're winning by default of this action. So, 
I don't think it was, hey, I really want to be in a Canadian economy and try to provide internet for those people in remote Ontario. I think it's one of those, hey, um, I got 12,000 satellites. If you guys want to like, <laughs> piggyback off this, sure, it's yours. I, I, I got to offer to Alaska anyway. So, sure, if you want to throw me a couple bucks, knock yourself out. Okay, well, listen, I'm down with it. If it's better coverage and cheaper rates, I mean, who wouldn't like that one-two punch? Adam Oldfield, appreciate the time as always, my friend. Thank you, Jeff. Have a great afternoon. You as well, tech expert Adam Oldfield. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.